An Atlas Air operating for Amazon is flying a cargo flight from Miami to Houston when disaster strikes. What caused this flight to disintegrate in Trinity Bay? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. We recorded yesterday. We're a disaster, <laughs> as usual. Nothing has changed <laughs> since <Sitting>? yesterday. <laughs> no, really Well, nothing. we have patrons we have to thank, because we forgot to thank them yesterday, because ah. we forgot they existed. Ah. So sorry. Well, then we're going to thank you. You remember that whole thing that I said about forgetting and losing track of patrons? It's a good <clears throat> problem to have. It's a good problem to have, but it is... A mm, problem. A problem that we have. Thank you to our new patrons, Annette and Lindsay. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Much thanks. Yeah. Very thank. All Super the thank. thank. We appreciate. Remember to do all the stuffs, the, the newsletter, yep. and the questions, and yep. the stories, yep. and the merch, yep. and the Patreon. Yep. And that's that's it. We got, <laughs> we got a lot of stuff for you to do and enjoy. Do blooper, it. blooper content this month is quality. Just just so you know. If, if you needed an incentive to join Patreon, there's your incentive. There are... 10 out of 10. Plenty of those going around, too, those blooper reels. Holy crap, there's so much stuff that does not make it onto these episodes. Yeah. If, if you only knew. If you only knew. Oh, my gosh. Poor, Sorry, Paige. Poor Paige. Uh, we're, we're disaster. We say as Paige just walked out the Literally door. just walked out the door not five minutes before we started recording. Okay, so... This is going to be a longer episode. A little bit. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Atlas Air Flight 3591. Thank you to our patron, Manu, for recommending this. Thanks, Manu. And this has been one that, of course, has been asked for, I'm sure, in person from several other people quite a few times. And I'm sure that there's quite a few people that have been waiting for this one to come around, because it is relatively recent. And forewarning for those of you that already know what happened, this one does include a Miranda Rage warning in advance, and I say that knowing full well that it's not in my part. Yay! I get to make Miranda mad and have her not be permanently mad at me. You gon' get mad. I already knew I'd probably get mad, though, so like... <laughs> Fair enough. Like, whose issue is it now? <laughs> so, this accident occurred on February 23rd of 2019. Quite recent. Quite recent. Making this one of the most recent reports we have ever done, because this report was also very new, and it's in the new format too, which, those of you know, there are goods and bads to that. There are some qualms I have with it. Okay, so the qualm that Nick has that he's gonna, he's gonna kindly not about, but I will about on his behalf, is the lack of an injury chart. Which every report ever before now, and from every country, even the court of inquiry reports we get, have that chart and now it's gone the ntsb doesn't even put it there anymore <laughs> sorry ultimately i guess i the, the small part of me that understands like why understands that's why would why does it even need it i guess but still this was a boeing 767-375 bcf uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> what the you right. want to run that one by me again? This is a 767-300 ER extended range, but it's modified to be a 375 BCF or Boeing converted freighter. It is a freight okay. aircraft. 
This was converted for Atlas Air to hull cargo, and it was painted in Amazon.com colors because this was their one of their big Amazon one of their airplanes. Prime birds. Their prime, prime air. Prime air birds. Yep. This one so the, you know that that had some two-day shipping packages on it. That sure did. That 100% did. that never got there. Yeah, uh-huh. Pretty much the whole some point. Some people didn't, got real mad they didn't get their packages. So in case you're wondering how that happens in the United States, not just around the world, though it does happen around the world, but primarily in the United States, Atlas Air is the primary mover of Amazon packages by air. So if anyone in... Houston wanted your packages in February of 2019 and you suddenly didn't get them. This might be why. <laughs> yeah. If you were Something wondering. might have happened. This one had the tail number November 1217 Alpha. This was a flight from Miami to Houston. Miami to Houston Intercontinental, the George Bush Intercontinental Airport. Specifically. Specifically, since there are two airports yeah, in Houston. There's JW. Actually, it's just George, George Bush, right? G- G- yeah. Yeah, because they changed it. Cause it used to be HW. Now it's just, and now George, it's just Bush George Bush. To acknowledge them both. both. Right. And then it's there's just the George Bush Intercontinental. Yeah. And, and then there's Houston Love. Houston Hobby. 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 It's Dallas. Dallas Love. Love Houston, Houston, Houston Hobby. Hobby. Yes. There's Good two, grief. There's two ridiculous Texas cities that are so big they require two airports, and each one of them decided to make a small one that's pretty much just Southwest. <laughs> Because that's what they do. That's that's how they operate. Anyways, beside the point. Captain for this flight was Ricky Blakely. He was 60 years old at the time. He had 11,172 hours total, of which 1,252 were on the 767. The first officer was Conrad Aska. He was 44 years old at the time. At the time, he had 5,073 hours total, of which 520 were on the 767. So he's newer to the 767, but... A little over 5,000 hours, so not low on hours, per se. Captain was pretty middle ground, I would say. There was also a person in the jump seat. That person's name was Sean Archuleta. He was 36 years old. He was a Mesa Airlines captain on his final week at Mesa Airlines and was traveling for work before beginning training with United Airlines the following week. So, Which probably would have been here. No, actually, that's why he oh. was going to Houston. Do they also have a training center? They used to. Oh. And they moved it in 2020. <laughs> I see. They combined them. So, yeah. Some training is still done in Houston, but it's primarily for flight attendants. So, so sorry, he's deadheading? Yep, he's just deadheading. On a cargo bird? Yep, they can do that. Actually, all pilots within the industry, usually that's a part of their agreement, is for work, they can deadhead back and forth on cargo flights, too, as long as there's a seat open. Huh. Because they have jump seat rights, so they can do it on any airplane. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So... Does Mesa have an agreement with Atlas? All of them do. Oh. All the airlines have agreements with one another. Oh, okay. It doesn't even matter. Like, literally every single one of them. They all figure out a way to get their pilots where they need to be, and that just basically says, look, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours, we don't care. That's what they do. Okay. Every single one of them. Because when Atlas Air needs to move pilots, they're probably going to put them on whatever airplane gets to where they need to go, and that might be Mesa. As an accountant, I have to ask the question, do they bill each other? Or do they just... It's, it really depends. There's a lot of different things built into these contracts. Most of the time, it's pretty much a $0 agreement. They're like, you move our right. people, we move yours. Great. Good. As long as the seats are available, because obviously if they're going to have a... If they've got a passenger, that a paying passenger that wants that seat, they're going to give that seat to the paying passenger. I mean, yeah, but... They're not going to give it up for a deadheading pilot. The only case where a deadheading pilot can still get on even when every seat is full, quote unquote, is when they get in the jump seat. 
Makes sense. Which they can. Lots of rules and regulations around that. There's all sorts of things that go along with that, but that is whole thing within the industry. So the flight was loaded with cargo for <clears throat> Amazon. Really? As it would. Did not just because it has <laughs> Prime on the side? No. Yeah. No. What? Yep. That's yep. The flight departed Miami at 11:33 a.m. local time. The takeoff, climb, cruise, and initial descent were all normal. The first officer was the pilot flying for this leg, while the captain was the pilot monitoring. At 12.30 p.m. and 37 seconds, local time, in Houston, while the flight was about 73 nautical miles southeast of Houston, on descent through 17,800 feet, the captain contacted the Houston Terminal Radar Approach Controller to report their position. This was basically making initial contact with the Houston area controllers. About three and a half minutes later, at 12.34 and nine seconds, the air traffic controller advised the flight of an area of light to heavy precipitation about 35 miles ahead of their position and to expect vectors to navigate around it, saying, hey, just so you know, there's weather ahead of you and I'm going to tell you to go somewhere else around it, but for now, just keep going. The flight crew acknowledged and continued en route. 12.36 p.m. and seven seconds, the flight crew switched roles for a little over a minute to allow the first officer to perform some tasks before switching back to normal roles. The only reason I really brought this up, not that it's not pertinent, but this is pretty normal, actually, in the cockpit. We don't really talk about this very often, so I thought this was a good time to maybe chat about this for a second. But role reversals in the cockpit happen on pretty much every flight. Should a pilot need to, I don't know, get up to use the bathroom or just need to do something alternative to flying the airplane and they need the other pilot to take over, this role reversal can happen. And it is a very controlled reversal. It requires a verbal change of command. You say... My controls. Yeah, my controls or I have control, and the other pilot has to confirm and say, you have control. So that happened from the first officer to the pilot to the captain, and then from the captain back to the first officer for just over a minute. During that time, the first officer made a call to the air traffic controller to request vectors to the west of the weather. The air traffic controller advised the flight to descend to 3,000 feet pretty much as soon as possible. The speed brakes were extended to allow the aircraft to descend quickly and in a controlled manner. This is normal. We've talked about this many a time. The air traffic controller then advised the flight to turn to a heading of 270 degrees, which the captain acknowledged. The crew then configured the flight management computer for the approach to Houston Intercontinental and lowered the slats just one degree. 12.38 p.m. and 31 seconds. While flying about 40 nautical miles from the Houston airport at 6,300 feet, the aircraft suddenly pitched up slightly and increased thrust dramatically during a six-second period. 12.38 p.m. and 36 seconds, so five seconds later, the speed brakes were retracted before the nose was pitched back down. The pitch down continued past its normal amounts, however. The airplane continued pitching nose down till it was pointed nearly straight toward the ground. The flight was in the clouds at the time that this occurred, this pitch up and this pitch down. That said, the aircraft did quickly descend out of the clouds. A manual input was made to deflect the elevators to pitch the nose up. This input was held for seven seconds, which unfortunately was the last seven seconds of the flight, since they were very low to the ground as it was anyways. It simply wasn't enough to get the airplane out of the dive in time before the aircraft struck a marshy body of water called Trinity Bay. It's a very large bay in the middle of Houston. The aircraft struck the water at 434 knots, at a descent rate of 12,850 feet per minute, which caused the aircraft to disintegrate Yeah. upon impact with the water. Yeah. It was quite literally like hitting a brick wall. Yeah. Water is an incompressible fluid. fluid. Yes, we've discussed this several times. Yay, physics. 
The aircraft was destroyed in two very small pieces, and all three crew members, or all three people on board, I yeah. should say, perished in the crash, which was caught, barely, on camera by a home security camera. Not a home security camera. It was a ring camera or something. Whatever one the investigators had was from a county jail security camera. Okay, well, it was from a security camera. Okay. That's all I know. Anyways, yeah, it was caught on Kay. camera by a security so, camera. So, to wrap up, right? Mm-hmm. They'd be flying. Uh-huh. They go up. Mm-hmm. They go Barely. down. Mm-hmm. They go down, 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 then almost up, and then crash. Not they, even really they didn't almost even, up. They didn't ever pitch The airplane pretty much just straight in. They didn't have any time. There was none. Have you seen the video before? Probably when it first came out. Yeah, I feel I like did. I would have shared this with y'all back when it happened. I remember when it came out, like, the when the accident actually happened. By the way, that happened yeah. after we started the podcast. Before. This happened six months before. No. No. This it, was February of 19. Oh, okay. We started in October of 19. So this happened like six or eight months before we started the podcast. So You did send it to us, though. The video, Mm -hmm. there's a 32-second video from the Houston Chronicle, which looks like it's from the ring doorbell, but the video I've seen must have been from the security camera at the jail. Maybe. Both videos, because I think I've seen both, both videos don't really tell much. I mean, you can't see a whole lot other than... An airplane pointed pretty much straight down. Yeah, hitting the the ground. (laughs) Neither neither video is close because it didn't hit near anything. It didn't hit any objects on the ground. Which, thank God. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Big place. We're talking about a seven six seven over the middle of one of the busiest cities in the country, and yet it didn't hit anything. Literally nothing. It hit water. It really was. It's the only reason that it didn't draw more attention. Was I feel like because it, it was only three people on board. And it didn't strike anything. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't anything to show after the accident either. There are phenomenal pictures, actually, in the report that show the I'm wreckage. actually going to show Miranda right now. <coughs> the NTSB's YouTube channel, which is NTSB Gov, did post a simulation video of what happened before the security camera footage. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to show that to Miranda right now. Do not comment on things you may see on the panel. I will get to them. Okay. I, then I won't look at the panel then. Yeah. Okay, they be flying. They be rolling. And rolling. And oh, rolling. <laughs> and then they do a little bit of up. Very slightly. Yeah, not much. And then they just go full-fledged down. <laughs> full-fledged. Oh my god! Uh, it's almost like they're vertical! They were, basically. Holy crap! Okay, I already know I'm going to get mad at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. I'm not looking at the panel either. I'm just like, what the hell? In case you needed it, there's the wreckage. Oh my god. You know what that reminds me of is the footage caught from the Nation Air flight. Mm-hmm. 747. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty... That's not the first time this will be brought up. Yes. Cargo. I mean, there really, yeah, there really isn't much to show. Like, literally, the wreckage is like, wow, look, nothing. <laughs> There's, it's literally it's just, just it's pieces. There's literally just, yeah, little like particles floating in the water. There was there's, a, a crash. I don't think we've covered it. However, I don't know if like you that. saw this picture. No. This is one of the most incredible pictures I have ever seen in a report. I don't know how they did this, but this is the reconstructed airplane in a hangar. Oh my God. Is that like from above? Yeah. This is an overview from like the top of the hangar, basically. They did basically what I assume is a LIDAR once they laid everything out on the floor. And yeah. scanned the whole thing and created Can you this. imagine how long that took? Oh, no. I, I mean, but they've done it's this. It's the worst kind of jigsaw puzzle yeah, yeah. ever. But they've done this several times over with a few other airplanes, but this was a big one. Like, well, and then on top of everything else, so not only do you have the wreckage of the plane, but you have, like, people's random 
Amazon orders. So you have to figure out what part, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, what well, part yeah, explain exactly. what parts Amazon order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, is someone <laughs> just picking up like stuff you really don't want other people to see, yeah. right? Like you never know what people are going to get in packages. Yeah, exactly. Right. So rather than trying to describe any bit of the wreckage or anything, I really do highly recommend go see this picture because this is really it'll, one of the it'll most... It'll be on the website. It is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in a report. I can't Good believe grief. they created like this reconstructed well, thing then, on the floor. The other thing that's crazy about it, so they crashed into a swamp. They impacted a swamp. Yes. And so investigators had to not only trudge through nasty swamp water, yep. but the wreckage was as far down as 10 feet deep in mud and silt. Right. Like it, it, it hit hard enough. To well, cause it, it had push to, itself. It, it sank. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. It just, it <laughs> yep. crashed at what? 500 miles an hour. Basically. Yep. So. And with all of that too, they said, investigators said that they were basically digging around with their hands through the mud and the water. Oh my just God. Just trying to find anything they could. Hopefully you don't get bit by like a snake or yeah, something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would hate that. That would be like the worst. I'm sure they're was, wearing all sorts of things to keep themselves from getting bit. But. I was telling my coworker, Jenna, about that we were covering this because she's kind of ish from the Houston area. Not really. But apparently one time she and her dad were driving around this area and uh, ran over a gator. Nice. <laughs> oh, so there are gators down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. So. It's like the Everglades all over again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is basically yeah. the Everglades of Texas. Like, it is. It's a marshy, shallow water bay. It's good. It's good. Gator. Territory. She's like, I'd, oh, go, yeah. I'd go to the beach there. I'm like, Jenna, this is a swamp. And she's like, yeah, and? <laughs> That's not a beach. <laughs> That's a dirty <laughs> mud water. Anyway, this investigation was performed by the NTSB. The NTSB. So, what's the first thing I always talk about? The CVR and the FDR. Did they yeah. not find those? So, did, listen. Did they disappear? Did, did, uh, did we give you an accurate enough depiction of the wreckage? So, investigators showed up and began going through the wreckage, and they tried to pick up the signal from the locator beacons. Neither signal was being emitted. So now, amidst everything else, have fun finding some black boxes mm-hmm. in the worst jigsaw puzzle of history. Uh-huh. Underwater, under mud, under silt. Eventually. You don't know where the tail came down, so there's no <laughs> way for you to actually figure out where it is. Yep. Well, and stuff is also drifting because swamps do still have currents. Yep. And it's water. So the whole situation, pardon my French, is Yes. Eventually, and I mean eventually. Both black boxes were recovered and sent to NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. Why couldn't they find them using the locator beacons? Neither locator beacon was found. Oh, they broke off? Yep. Damn. Mm -hmm. Heavy impact, you might have surmised. The CBR had two hours of fair and poor quality audio, and the FDR had 54 hours of data. That's nice. Yeah. Since they're only required to have 25, I mean, yeah. 54 is pretty good. 54 is really nice. Well, and I knew they would have found it because they were able to make a simulation, so. Yes. Did I give that away? I'm sorry. I mean, also, the accuracy of times is always kind of a giveaway when I'm telling the story uh, yeah, and I start yeah. going into seconds. It's like, you, you know. Because they did not have the black boxes for quite a while, investigators interviewed and collected data from air traffic control, who reported that there was turbulence in the area, but no lightning. The crew never reported any issues or signaled any form of distress. They just stopped communication after a weather briefing, and ATZ watched as they quickly lost altitude in a matter of seconds with no time to reach out. Yep. Based on the weather in the area, weather was eliminated as a cause. Weirdly enough, because there was weather, but... 
Security camera footage from a local jail surfaced and confirmed that the aircraft impacted at a high-speed, nose-down attitude. So, there came under suspicion, the flight controls. Investigators were able to recover the jack screw from the tail, which controls pitch using the tail. The jack screw has caused a crash before in Alaska Airlines Flight 261, which is Miranda so numero uno. Yes, it was. But upon examination, nothing was found to be wrong with the jack screw. No evidence of wear or stripped threads, and the position was consistent with pilot-controlled inputs. From the descent profile that was extracted from ATC radar data, it appeared that it was a fairly normal descent per ATC instructions until about 6,000 feet, when the descent rate increased. It was suspected that mayhaps this was intentional, like the German Wings flight in 2015. But there was no evidence in either pilot's medical record that would support such a situation. Okay, now investigators have the CBR, since that was found first. 15 seconds before impact, the first officer said, Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Where's my speed? I was told to leave out all of the um, communication that happened in the story. (laughs) And there's not much, but that was one of them. (laughs) Whoa. 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 Where's my speed? My speed? We're stalling. Stall! Uh, no Sherlock? Actually... But we know they hit at a high speed, so that doesn't really make sense, unless they were trying to recover from a stall, maybe? So what do we know can cause a stall on a cargo flight? Not loaded great cargo? Yeah, that! Yeah, that's cargo a- not loaded great. There we go. <laughs> I can English. English is... I can English well. So good. Well, if something went wrong in the cargo hold, maybe like the cargo shifting, a la National Flight 102, Nation? Yeah. National? Na- National. National Airlines. Thank nation, you. Nation Air. No, Nation Air was the fire. Nation Air was the fire. Was it the fire? That was the DC-8 I always, fire. I, always I mix these two. National, to, to be clear, National still exists. Nation Air does not. Okay, National Flight 102. Maybe the cargo shifted, and this would cause the center of gravity to be further aft and throw off the controls of the aircraft and make it stall. But investigators interviewed and poured through the records of the cargo handling facility at Miami, and everything was up to snuff. Impeccable, even, as was phrased in the Air Disasters episode, which, fun fact, came out, ah, two weeks, not even, before the recording of this episode. Yeah. So have fun finding a copy of it. Yep. Might have to wait till the full, like, seasons are out. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, the security camera footage accounts for five seconds of the dive. We need to know what happened for the other period of time between the steep descent and then. Well, now we have the FDR data to look through. The data showed some turbulence around 38 seconds before impact. So, 38 seconds is where this started to go wrong. This did not take very long. No, it did not. And nothing really abnormal until the abrupt descent once the first officer announced a stall. There was nothing to indicate a stall. Airspeed was normal. Angle of attack was normal. There was no stick shaker. Well, everything seemed normal, except for one small parameter that has an on-off recording on the FDR, and it recorded as on not long after the turbulence. The aircraft was in go-around mode. The Uh-huh. Which increases thrust and pitch. Why? Exactly. So that's weird. <laughs> Wait, what? They weren't even close to landing yet. What? Okay. All right, continue. Sorry. So that's weird. <laughs> the crew never mentioned a go around and they were trying to descend to 3,000 feet as instructed and were not close to landing as someone aptly mentioned. Was it activated by accident? To determine this, the investigators went into a simulator with a 767 first officer and went through the accident descent leading to the upset. As they did in the FDR and CBR, the crew extended the speed brakes to assist 
in the descent. And as per Atlas Air standard Don't. operating procedure, the first officer kept his hand on the speed brakes handle as a tactile reminder that they were activated since there wasn't an oral warning. The investigator sitting in the left seat noticed that depending on the throttle setting... Don't... I literally was just going to say, don't tell me he flicked it by accident. Oh, but it gets so much worse. Stop. It gets worse. The first officer's left wrist while holding the speed brake lever to the left of the throttles was rather close to the go-around switch, which is on the underside of the throttle lever. In the simulator, they simulated turbulence and found that especially with a bulky watch on, which the first officer was known to have been wearing, it's easy to close that distance and accidentally activate the go-around switch. Now, traditionally, so this is not necessarily actually a traditional go-around switch. They are on the throttles, traditionally, but usually where that little black button is on the side rather than the button underneath, that little black button, it's usually indented all the way into the handle. That's the go-around switch on, like standard Airbus and most other Boeings. But, but on the no. 7.5 and then on the 7.6, it's this big button lever underneath the throttle. It's literally on the underside of the handle, just to put in perspective. The simulator first officer said he didn't feel a thing when he pressed it accidentally, and there was no oral warning that had been activated. The CVR had picked up a small click, indicating that it had indeed been pressed, but that doesn't mean the crew heard it. I'm amazed they could hear that on the CVR. They, I they am did. Astonished. Especially since the CVR was said to be of fair to poor quality. Right. Ah, but you might ask, are there any other indicators that they were in go around mode? The primary flight display does show GA across the top in three different spots, as does the crew alerting system ACAS, indicating that the go around mode had been activated, something that the captain should have noticed since he was pilot monitoring. GA, 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 GA. At the top. Yes. Wouldn't it be on both sides, too? Yep. Yes. We'll talk about the first officer in a second. Well, the, I, listen, the competency of the first officer makes me slightly scared, but okay. Uh, that's almost the rest of my thing, so give me a minute. Okay. Yeah. So what was the captain doing that he missed that key detail? Easy. He was on the radio with air traffic control. It yeah, was. doing his job. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> doing his job. Reducing yes. his awareness of the airplane's automation status and energy state. But more than that, research has shown that pilots can miss changes in displayed modes if they are unexpected and do not have an oral warning. So, <clears throat> maybe have an <clears throat> oral, oral warning. warning. It's not a bad idea, but we'll get to that when you get to the safety recommendations and things, actually, and the findings. Do they recommend it? No. Damn it! All they recommend, not giving away too much is to bring it to the attention of 767 and 757 pilots. And there's really good reason. They have pretty good justification as to why. We'll discuss that later. Okay. So to summarize and get to the exact phenomenon that occurred, let's put together what we know. Crew is flying, entering the cold front, hit some turbulence with the speed brakes extended, accidentally activate the go-around mode, which increases engine power and pitch. The correct thing to do in this scenario would have been to scan the instruments, realize that something unexpected happened, and disconnect any automation, such as the autopilot and autothrottle. The first officer did not specifically say he noticed something was unexpected, but he did say, oh, and whoa. <laughs> that still doesn't tell me that you've seen something unexpected other than you're slightly surprised. <laughs> During which time he had started manually manipulating controls without fully assessing the situation. Or saying anything about that. So, the human body uses three systems to determine its own orientation and movement within space. The first is your vestibular system, or sense, which uses the autolith organs in the inner ear, which has liquid to help determine up from down. The somatosensory sense uses nerves in the skin, muscles, and joints to sense direction. And lastly, your visual sense uses, um, your eyes. Yep. To determine position. 
Because they have no view of the horizon and are in a dense cloud, the first officer seemed to have neglected his instruments and experienced spatial disorientation, and his vestibular and somatosensory senses led him to believe that they were ascending at a higher rate than they really were, because those two systems cannot distinguish between gravity and acceleration from the plane, creating a phenomenon known as somatographic illusion, which is a form of spatial disorientation. It's actually exactly the same way that in the simulators, they make you feel like you are accelerating. Because obviously they can't accelerate a simulator, so all they do is use the same part of your bodily system to simulate that by tilting the simulator at a certain amount. To make you feel like you're accelerating. Right, and continue that tilt to make you feel like you're accelerating at a constant pace. Interesting. As such, he believed them to be entering a stall and proceeded with the actions to get out of the stall, namely to lower the nose and counteract the go-around autopilot pitch-up function. But this whole situation could have been easily avoidable if he had just looked at his instruments. Does it says G-A-G-A-G-A-G-A? Yeah. And it tells you where the f*** you are? Yeah, it gives you all of your position <laughs> data. This is why instrument scans are such a vital part of training. Did he have a training history of not doing so? No. No. Really? <laughs> Seriously? Come on! Uh, oh. Why? Oh, things get so much worse from here. <laughs> How? Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. Investigators began with the first officer's records at Atlas, going back to being hired. Atlas pilot hiring includes an initial review of an application for minimum requirements, a resume review, and a telephone screening. During the screening process, they cross-checked the information provided on the application with the information given during interviews and with the information on the background check. But they ultimately relied on the applicant's honesty. Maybe don't. What? (laughs) Come on! (laughs) It was at this point that investigators found out that the first officer did not disclose everything to Atlas in his application and hiring process, meaning that Atlas did not have a full picture of his career and training performance history. Investigators reviewed the first officer's training records from the seven total airlines he had been at over nine years. Oh my god, red flag! What the hell? Wait a minute! (laughs) Wait a minute! You're telling me that they didn't, like, be like, huh, this seems a little suspicious. He hardly stayed at any airline for more than a year. That's so suspicious. He failed to disclose working for Commute Air in 2011 and Air Wisconsin Airlines in 2012, both of which he resigned from after not completing initial training. (sighs) Mm Mm-hmm. But now he's flying a 767. He attributed the gaps in his employment history to college, furlough, and other non-airline work. So he freaking lied. He also did not disclose that at Mesa Airlines in 2015 to 2017, he had tried to upgrade to captain, but was unsuccessful in doing so. Maybe because you don't know what the hell you're doing, dude. Clearly. (laughs) He... You can't pass any checks? Huh. It gets worse. It does get worse. Investigators determined that the first officer's repeated use of incomplete and inaccurate information about his employment history on resumes and applications were deliberate attempts to conceal his history of performance deficiencies, therefore depriving Atlas Air of the opportunity to fully evaluate his competency. Well, what kind of performance deficiencies did he have? Oh, please don't say career resource manager. Let's have a look at just his Atlas Air records, because I'm not going through all of it. Him, 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 him. After finishing Atlas's Basic indoctrination training, which I don't like how that's I do worded. not like the name of that. <laughs> it's like you're indoctrinating yourself into a cult. Yes. That's pretty telling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hate that. After finishing Atlas's basic indoctrination training and Boeing 767 ground school, the first officer was assigned remedial training. 
to, quote, address weaknesses in his knowledge of airplane takeoff and landing performance and airplane systems, end quote. Which is flying 101. Yeah, like, um, <laughs> if you're like, needing to get remedial training right after initial ground school training, I feel like that's, like, another red flag. Not good. Not it a good omen. gets worse. Yeah, it does. After finishing the remedial training, he passed. Then hey. he was assigned more remedial training. <laughs> yep. For performing normal procedures. Which he finished so he could proceed to full flight simulator training in August 2017. After two simulator sessions, his simulator partner complained that he was being held back by the accident first officer. Atlas Air paused the first officer simulator training, citing understaffing, and restarted his simulator training on August 27, 2017. Not long after, a hurricane shut down all training, hmm. and his training did not resume until September 19th, where he then failed his type rating exam three days later. Yay. He was reported as being, quote, very nervous, demonstrating very low situational awareness, poor CRM, and a tendency to take inappropriate action when he perceived the need to do something. The examiner said the first officer's performance was so poor that he was concerned that the first officer would be unable to mentally recover enough to pass the course, end quote. Not good. Not I will Great. But after more remedial training, the first officer passed the type rating checkride on September 26th. I have no idea. How they let him go How? that far. And the remedial training was described as a great training session. But the first officer had a confidence problem. He was allowed to continue flying because Atlas's fleet captain attributed certain factors to the first officer's poor performance, including schedule interruptions, family issues reported by the first officer, and nervousness due to the presence of the FAA examiner. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I don't know. So a bunch of Because that's I'm sorry. If you haven't figured it out by now... <laughs> You aren't going to figure it out. The fleet captain opted to monitor the first officer's operational experience to determine whether or not he deserved to be placed on the Proficiency Watch Program, or PWP. The first officer flew 53 hours with an Atlas Czech airman and demonstrated no more difficulties. I'm surprised. And how? <laughs> that's what I got. Sorry to be so abrupt, but uh, if that doesn't explain it, I don't know what does. Yeah, so... Um, in the Air Disasters episode, they mentioned that he, when confronted with a difficult situation, would just start pressing buttons. I'm sorry, but... That was not in the report, <laughs> but... Yes, but as a pilot... Don't just press buttons. That's not gonna... Turbulence! Help. Buttons! <laughs> buttons! <laughs> buttons! <laughs> save me! Save me! Save me! <laughs> I really hate to joke about that because, unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. That is 100% case. what happened. Something strange happened. They flew into weather. He got disoriented like that and immediately started doing something, so, something, because he felt like he needed to. Even though if he had just left well enough alone, they assessed the situation, they could have just flown the airplane. Well, and sorry, mm -hmm. I didn't mean to cut you off. You're good. Um, but isn't there, like... I thought I remember hearing something about the captain was like, what the hell are you doing on the CVR? No. No. I thought there was... No, the captain basically said, what is going... Like, where, where's my speed? What's going on? No, that's what the first officer said. Yeah, but he said something else, too. He did say <coughs> something. Hold on. I'll find it. The captain asked, what's going on? Three seconds after the everything was going on. And then the jump seat pilot said, pull up. Oh, well... Brilliant. And that was like three seconds before the accident. By the way, um, hold on, I'm trying to find it. They put the whole CVR here. What really surprises me is Atlas Air, mm -hmm. like not doing reference checks. So, 
Good point. You have yeah. a, you have a good point, and there's a lot to discuss on that in the second half. Okay, because that is most of what the investigators like, talk about. Poo poo on the half. first officer, right? Like, uh, definitely, he he lied. Mm-hmm. He definitely probably even shouldn't be a pilot. Like, if you don't get it after a certain point, you're not yes. going to get it, right? Like, right. you should find a different profession. Right. It's just like how not all teachers should be teachers, right? Like, not all pilots should be pilots. Right. But my huge issue, and like you said, we're probably going to get into it in the mm-hmm. second half, is there was information. There was some. He did leave out the parts that were really important, which would have been hard to find, which is why the second half will be really important. It is the things that they are trying to change still, but it is something that's... But he did he not put like happening. any of the references he had on his he resume? He put some. He put some. And they checked some, but not a lot. We'll talk about it. So, sorry it took me so long to find. Here is the CVR starting at 1238.31.1, at which there was the sound of the click. There is a footnote here about the sound of the click. Mm-hmm. The group, meaning I think the board, was reconvened on November 14th, 2019. This sound was not initially heard during the first transcription sitting of the group on March 5th, 2019. After the generation of the sound spectrum study, which can be found in the public docket for this accident, all members of the group were able to detect the sound when directed to the area of interest on the recording. The air traffic controller then reached out and said, Giant 3591 in about another 18 miles or so will cut you due north for a base leg. The cockpit picked up the sound of four beeps within a duration of three quarters of a second at a frequency of 1200 hertz. Does, does not say what it's for. I think that's why they thought it was his watch. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, maybe he pressed a button on his watch. Okay, then the captain said, sounds good, a giant 3591. Air traffic control said, it is severe clear on the other side of this stuff, so you'll have no problem getting the airport. It'll be so clear. (laughs) So clear. You'll never have any issues. It's going to be so clear, you'll never believe it. You'll you'll, never believe your eyes. It's so severely clear. (laughs) The first officer then said, oh, and then there was a sound similar to a mechanical click. Then the first officer said, whoa, spoken in an elevated voice. He then said, where's my speed? My speed. Sound similar to louder mechanical click. The captain said, okay, (laughs) on the radio. Oh. Right. The cabin picked up sounds similar to multiple random thumping noises. We're stalling, the first officer said. Stall. Expletive. Doesn't say who said the expletive. I guess the first officer. The first officer then said, oh, Lord, have mercy myself. Sounds similar to multiple random thumping noises. First officer said, Lord, have mercy. The captain then said, what's going on? The first officer said, Lord. The cabin then picked up the sound of a thousand hertz series of beeps with approximately a quarter second spacing between. The group could not determine if audible sound lasted until the end of the recording. All of that happened in 32 seconds. I'm not done. I know. The first officer then said the captain's name. The jump seat pilot said, what's going on? Someone was rapidly breathing. The first officer said the captain's name again. Then there was a sound of a quick series of four beeps at 1200 hertz. Then there was the sound of a longer duration pulse tone at about 1000 hertz, similar to a siren. Group could not determine if audible sounds lasted until end of recording. The jump seat pilot said, pull up! Then the first officer started yelling, and then someone said, oh god, and then the first officer said, lord, you have my soul. And then the recording ended. So here's here's another issue that I have. And I mean, how many times have we talked about stalls on this mm-hmm. podcast? Like, I don't know, at least 50 times, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
over our 184 episodes, right? Mm -hmm. At least. Mm -hmm. And the jump that he made. Yes. You're correct. Any of the signs that are there to help them. There was no stick shaker. There was no stick shaker. There's no stick pusher. There was absolutely zero indication of a stall. No indication. The only indication at all he had was his vestibular system, which he was relying on. And he's deliberately trained. Above all else, he was for some reason allowing his vertigo to make him think that they were in a stall. Well, my other astonishment, though, is he didn't even ask the two other people Mm -hmm. in the cockpit. I mean, I realize the guy in the jump seat, he's also a pilot. I'm sure he would have figured it out, right? Yeah, but But he wasn't part of the crew. He wasn't part of the crew. I get that. But the captain was there. Like the Instead of like hastily pushing the stick forward and being like... He pulled back, actually. The captain was the one who did the seven-second input of pulling the stick back. Well, yes, but that's not what I mean, though. And we'll talk about that, actually, because it's important. I mean, before the first officer decided to pull, like, we're stalling, Mm -hmm. push, right? Like, my thought is, like, why didn't you say something, consult with your fellow pilot? Like... There, right. You have two people in there for a reason. Right. And I realize he's doing calls, but he's like, where's my speed? Where's my speed? Talk to the person who's supposed to be on the instruments. Be exactly. like, what's And speed? look at your damn instruments. And your yes. speed was increasing. And this was <laughs> the indication that he overreacted, as he is one to do, and completely broke crew resource management because of it. I mean, he entirely let his own bias of the situation and belief that he could fix the problem become his entire his death sentence yes and his entire being he didn't allow crew resource management to take over he didn't seek help he didn't try to use the resources available to better the situation or help himself he reacted solely that's it now he's not solely at fault nope the captain should have taken control and should have said my controls are my airplane but he did not do that either and And i didn't really touch on that a whole lot no and they didn't entirely blame him for it either it is in the findings it is in the racks but they did well it's in the findings they did say that it wasn't entirely his fault because he He was in the middle of doing something well and he did not have long to figure it out so by the time he actually took control of the airplane and was trying to pull it out of the dive, there weren't any words that could come to mind. He was just pulling for his life. And unfortunately, he lost his And mind. it didn't work. And I hate to say this, but I 100% blame Atlas. Yep. For not vetting their pilots better. That is not their fault. We'll talk about it. That I, is not their fault. I don't blame them for not vetting. I blame them for allowing him to continue flying after that. repeated demonstrated Agreed. performance issues. Agreed. That we'll talk about. That's where I get the problem. The vetting, we'll talk about why that's not their problem. That's why that's not their fault. I realized that he also lied. He lied, and that's not the only thing wrong there. We'll talk about it. Okay. Let's take a break. Break. Okay. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. We are back. We're back. We have been beveraged. 
beveraged and outraged. And outraged. So, let us get into these findings and probable cause and recommendations. These findings as we set them before you? Yes. They found that. The activation of the airplane's go-around mode was unintended and unexpected by the pilots and occurred when the flight was encountering light turbulence and likely instrument meteorological conditions associated with its penetration of the leading edge of a cold front. They found that, presuming that the first officer was holding the speed brake lever as expected in accordance with the Atlas Air Inc.'s procedure, the inadvertent activation of the go-around mode likely resulted from an unintended contact between the FO's left wrist, or watch, and the left go-around switch due to turbulence-induced loads that moved his arm. So, real quick, mm-hmm. because I meant to ask this before we braked, and mm-hmm. then I didn't. Mm-hmm. Broke? Broke. Braked, whatever. So, let's say he didn't freak out about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he did. Mm-hmm. How would they have, would they have just shut off the switch? They would have turned off the autopilot. And auto throttle. And auto throttle. Then assess the situation, set up again, and re-engage them. Okay. Simple as that. You say that, but clearly. that. <laughs> <laughs> For them, for this guy, I don't know. Anyways, they found that despite the presence of the go-around mode indications on the flight mode enunciator and other cues that indicated that the airplane had transitioned to an automated flight path that differed from that what the crew had been expecting, neither the first officer nor the captain were aware that the airplane's automated flight mode had changed. It had changed, and neither one of them knew it changed. No, they did not. And to be fair, there was no, yes, oral warning, and... I can understand why that's an issue. Again, we'll get to this in a little bit, why they disagree. But it's not so much the issue of that as, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me. I mean, I guess they were still moving at a relatively high rate of speed, but the sudden full throttle and heavy acceleration still should have been a sign. They found that given that the first officer was the pilot flying and had not verbalized any problem to the captain or initiated positive transfer of airplane control, the manual forward elevator control column inputs that were applied seconds after the inadvertent activation of the go-around mode were likely made by the first officer. He just pushed the stick forward. Yeah. Because why? Because they were stalling. (laughs) That's why. Clearly they were Clearly they were stalling. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you know? And that's how you fix a stall, apparently. I mean, he wasn't wrong about that. If it had been a stall and there was any indication it was a stall, which there wasn't, They found that the first officer likely experienced a pitch-up semitographic illusion as the airplane accelerated due to the inadvertent activation of the go-around mode, which prompted him to push forward on the elevator control column. Yep. All of that to say his vertigo went wild, and he just decided to go with it. And he listened to it. He decided to go with it. Don't go with it. Because he was wrong. They found that although compelling sensory illusions, stress, and startle response can adversely affect the performance of any pilot, the first officer had fundamental weaknesses in his flying aptitude and stress response that further degraded his ability to accurately assess the airplane's state and respond with appropriate procedures after the inadvertent activation of the go-around mode. He just straight-up panicked. As soon as something was a little off, straight-up panicked. This wasn't even like, okay, so they were accelerating and they were going upward. It was not significant. I can't even, I, I wish I could demonstrate for most people how insignificant this amount of change really was that he decided to panic and react violently to, because it was not much. It was not much. They found that had the Federal Aviation Administration met the deadline and complied with, here it is, the big one, the requirements for implementing the Pilot Records Database 
As stated in Section 203 of the Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act of 2010, the PRD would have provided hiring employers relevant information about the first officer's employment history and training performance deficiencies. They blame the FAA. For not having well, a they, database. Which they agreed to in 2010 to begin setting up, and they had begun, and they were supposed to be done, and they weren't. Yeah, you had almost 10 years. Right, and that's the problem. They should have had this database, which would have compiled all of the records from any training and any carrier that this pilot had gone through, and made it centralized for any carrier to look at. Because the way the system was up to this point, it provided deficient pilots the ability to continue to seek employment. By saying, oh, I didn't work for them, and I didn't work for them. Despite obvious and well-documented performance deficiencies. Unfortunately, this is the case in aviation where a pilot who keeps failing out of training with certain airlines can just go to another airline, never show that they worked for the other one, claim whatever they want in their resume, and then and get the, away with it. the airline would never think to go ask the other airline, oh, how'd they do? Because there's too many operators and airlines in the world for each airline to call up everybody and say, hey, do they work for you? How were they? They're only going to call the ones that are on the resume, and he probably only put the ones that would have something at least decent relatively to decent to say about Which him. shocks me, since he went through seven airlines in nine years, that right. any of them would have anything good to say about him, period. <laughs> Pretty much. You're right. By the way, the seven airlines includes Atlas. Yes, but still, regardless. That- they probably don't have anything good to say about him either. Well, they didn't. And now he's dead, so. So I can't actually advocate enough for how important this is. I understand why some people are a little apprehensive of it. I don't. It can... Does it give you second chances? No. Right. It doesn't breed second chances. It doesn't allow you to but this speak was more yourself than, on the situation. This was more than just a second chance. Right. He had plenty of those. Right. Agreed. This one was glaring. They found that while the captain was setting up the approach and communicating with the air traffic control, his attention was diverted from monitoring the airplane's state and verifying that the flight was proceeding as planned, which delayed his recognition of and response to the first officer's unexpected action that placed the airplane in a dive. This is a CRM point, and this is where they placed a small bit of blame on the captain. I really shouldn't say it's blame. They really just said, like, mm, he was distracted, doing job, doing his duty, but... I mean, they have to say it. it's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. He was distracted and missed the important things. So, unfortunately, that's how it goes. They found that the captain's failure to command a positive transfer of control of the airplane as soon as he attempted to intervene in the control enabled the first officer to continue to force the airplane into a steep dive. So, as I said, he didn't take control, which he could have done. Right. If he had said, I have control... At any point in time. There's no saying whether It wouldn't or not- necessarily have saved them. And that's why they don't stress this point too much, and they're not going to try to make that a thing. Because they just don't know. They don't know for sure. And on top of that, it still, even though there was a small breakdown in CRM, it wasn't the big problem. It really wasn't. There, was, there wasn't much the captain could have done. There was no breakdown in CRM on the captain's side, right. or minimal, non-causal. Right. They found that the captain's degraded performance, which included a failure to assume positive control of the airplane and effectively arrest the airplane's descent, resulted from the ambiguity, high stress, and short time frame of the situation. So that's where they start to take everything off of him and say, look, this was a really stressful situation, there was a lot going on, and it happened really fast. Really fast. Found that the first officer's repeated use of incomplete and inaccurate information about his employment history on resumes and applications were deliberate attempts to conceal his history of performance deficiencies and deprived Atlas Air Inc. and at least one other former employer of the opportunity to fully evaluate his aptitude and competency as a pilot. 
They were able to pull records from a previous application and found he had previously... Also lied. ...not disclosed. Right. They found that Atlas Air Inc.'s human resource personnel's reliance on designated agents to review pilot background records and flag significant items of concern was inappropriate and resulted in the company's failure to evaluate the first officer's unsuccessful attempt to upgrade to captain at his previous employer. So this Not is, often that they point to HR. Yes, this is where they really point the finger at Atlas Air and they say, hey, that doesn't work. <laughs> that does not work. <laughs> the whole HR thing. Because it's not even so much HRs. It, like, basically in all of this, what they're saying here is Atlas Air used an independent agent to vet these pilots rather than doing it themselves. And they didn't have enough information to go on. They also weren't doing enough research when they did that. So this independent agent would just look at the pilot, what they provided, some brief records, and go, okay, fine. Pilot. Check. He can come in. Rather than actually vetting, based on knowing what qualifications are actually needed, knowing what red flags to look for, etc. Which, we'll get to because there's more of that coming. <laughs> they hit on this quite a bit. They found that operators that rely on designated agents or human resource personnel for initial review of records obtained under the Pilot Records Improvement Act should include flight operations subject matter experts early in the records review process. So rather than just being a person searcher... <laughs> Talent acquisition. Yes, talent acquisition. They really need to have somebody who knows exactly, especially when it comes to pilots, is an expert in the matter when it comes to hiring pilots and knows what to look for. Because it is a very specific job with very specific it's qualifications. It's not just your average HR person. Gosh, no. And it has a lot of specific qualifications. Yeah, because my next, like, I didn't even think about this. It just popped into my brain. Uh -huh. But he clearly had our stuff that they had to present it. Mm. He had to present to them. And did he was he was just like, yeah, I have these hours and you're not going to know who I have them with. Mm, pretty much. And how they were verified. I don't know how strict they are in reviewing his logbook, though. And ultimately, I mean, that kind of comes down to, yeah, I don't know how much they looked at the logbook. That requires an expert to look at to really understand what's written there. And further to that, I mean, yeah, they should have been asking questions based on that, what's on his logbook, and they weren't. Do pilots submit their logbooks as part of their application? They can. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to verify hours usually when you get employed, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> they found that all pilots of the Boeing 767 and 757 series airplanes, which share a similar go-around switch design, could benefit from an awareness of the circumstances of this accident that likely led to the inadvertent activation of the go-around mode. Seems like a recommendation, right? They bring this up again in the recommendations. We'll talk about it more then, because I know that this was something that you brought up several times about, are we, they should change that. That's, that's actually, they really do justify pretty well why not. <laughs> it doesn't mean they can't change it. No. It just means that they don't <laughs> want to change it. They don't want to change it, and it's not worth it. That's kind of the gist of it. We'll talk about it. Anyways, here comes the interesting things. Two. Two things. Two things. One of them were beating a dead horse, but the other one... Again, these are kind of recommendations, and they do come up in the recommendations, too. They found that the Department of Defense has developed approaches to automatic ground collision avoidance system technology for fighter airplanes that, if successfully adapted for use in lower-performance, less maneuverable airplanes, could serve as a model for the development of similar installations in civil transport category airplanes that could dramatically reduce terrain collision accidents involving pilot spatial disorientation. But I know pilots are going to be hesitant about more automation. Uh-huh. So, this is one of those double-edged things where technology has advanced a lot. And yes, this is possible now. And we deploy it in drones to keep them from running into things, since there's nobody actually in them. 
<clears throat> where now they just automatically avoid things that are obviously solid objects, i.e. the ground. And so basically what they're talking about here is deploying this into a much larger scale and making a part of newer technology to just make it so that aircraft are well aware of all obstacles, since basically we've already adapted them to do so by GPS, where they are already given an obstacle database, terrain database. They know everything about their position within space. Aircraft are well aware of anything they could hit at this point. It is not to say that far of a stretch to keep it from hitting things, but over-reliance on automation could also make it so that it is difficult to get out of certain situations should the airplane put itself into a quote-unquote life-saving maneuver. Ergo, the whole issue with the axes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, if you've ever heard, like heard about the the whole like conundrum of like self driving cars, uh huh, of like you could hit a wall or a bunch of people, right? And the, your brakes don't work or whatever. Like, what is the car gonna choose to save the driver or to save the people? Which is why you can't have fully automatic driven cars because AI can't make the the distinction, right? Nor like does it really care to, right? So. <laughs> When you talk about automation with stuff like this, it's great. But when it goes wrong, it goes real wrong. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a human backup. Right. So it's interesting they bring this up. And it is in the recommendations, too. Now let's beat a dead horse. They found that an expanded data recorder that records the position of various knobs, switches, flight controls, and information from electronic displays, as specified in Amendment 43 to the recorder standards of the ICAO, would not have provided pertinent information about the flight crew's actions, but... However! To further that, they found that a flight deck image recording system, compliant with Technical Standard Order, TSO C-176A, cockpit image recorder equipment, would have provided relevant information about the data available to the flight crew and the flight crew's action during the accident flight. Yes, we are beating a dead horse. They want cameras in the cockpit. They've wanted them for years. They still decades ask decades even. Yes, they still ask for this, and it comes up. It again. is still on their most wanted and list. Every time the FAA goes, no. Right. Well, because it is such a battle. There are, and this goes beyond the FAA, because now you're talking about workplace things. When you talk about workplace things, this gets hairy. So, in case most of you that probably don't know this, maybe a lot of you do. At least in the United States, when it comes to workplaces, you cannot have audio recording devices where video recording devices are present in a workplace. FYI. So, that would instantly negate a CVR. Mm-hmm. Which is very hairy. Which is way more vital of a component. Right. And this is talking about not like phones or anything like that. We're talking about literally like security camera and like anything that records your workplace at all times. So if you have a camera in your workplace that records your workplace at all times, it is not allowed to also record audio to that same thing. And that is a really touchy point. And just the same, the pilots' unions are very quick to remind them of that every time this is brought up. I can understand why. You don't need anything that causes more micromanagement or risk to loss of job. Mm -mm. And... I can understand why this can be such a legally hairy point. The CVR already can be very telling, and is there's so much regulation already around the CVR. Using it and pulling it. Right, and how it's to be used because of this. And to that end, adding a video, there's a few things to that. Sure, it might add a little more information that you might really like to have. 
But most of the time, all it's really going to do is be footage nobody wants to see in an accident and be used for the wrong reasons, potentially. So I can understand why this is so touchy. Moving on to the probable cause. Verbatim, as usual. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the inappropriate response by the first officer as the pilot flying to an inadvertent activation of the go-around mode, which led to his spatial disorientation and nose-down control inputs that placed the airplane in a steep descent from which the crew did not recover. Contributing to the accident was the captain's failure to adequately monitor the airplane's flight path and assume positive control of the airplane to effectively intervene. Also contributing were systemic deficiencies in the aviation industry's selection and performance measurement practices, which failed to address the first officer's aptitude-related deficiencies and maladaptive stress response. Also contributing to the accident was the Federal Aviation Administration's failure to implement the pilot records database in a sufficiently robust and timely manner. Yep. Nice and well-rounded for ya. They hit on all the really important things. So, let's do some recommendations. I am going to read these three back to back to back and not say anything about them until I'm done because they all tie together. They recommend inform Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 119 Certificate Holders, Air Tour Operators, Fractional Ownership Programs, Corporate Flight Departments, and Governmental Entities Conducting Public Aircraft Operations About the Hiring Process Vulnerabilities Identified in This Accident and Revise the Advisory Circular 120-68H, Pilot Record Improvement Act, and Pilot Records Database. To emphasize the operator should include flight operations subject matter experts early in the records review process and ensure that significant training issues are identified and fully evaluated. They recommend implementing the pilot's records database and ensure that it includes all industry records for all training started by a pilot as part of the employment process for any Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 119 certificate holder, air tour operator, fractional ownership program, corporate flight department, or governmental entity conducting public aircraft operations, regardless of the pilot's employment status and whether the training was completed. And they recommend ensuring that the industry records maintained in the pilot records database are searchable by a pilot's certificate number to enable a hiring operator to obtain all background records for a pilot reported by all previous employers. Reading all three of those back to back to back, you can understand why. It's because they all have to do with training and the database. Making sure that all records about a pilot's training and hours and everything are all collected, put in a database, and tied to their pilot certificate number. Readily accessible, readily searchable. Searchable by anybody who needs it, and that there's expert in hiring these pilots at any company where they are needed early in the process to do so to search and review these records so that they can review this kind of stuff and eliminate early these pilots that need more work. Or at least be able to identify when they do need more work and be able to work with them a lot harder on what their strengths and weaknesses are. They recommend issuing a safety alert for operators to inform pilots and operators of Boeing 767 and 757 series airplanes about the circumstances of this accident and alert them that due to the close proximity of the speed brake lever to the left go-around mode switch, it is possible to inadvertently activate the go-around mode when manipulating or holding the speed brake lever as a result of unintended contact between the hand or wrist and the go-around switch. All of this is tied into saying they really needed to just make sure that all these pilots are aware of the situation on the 767 and the 757, the potential for hitting this go-around switch. And the only reason that they're suggesting really just advising the pilots that this could happen, they had two pretty good justifications for this. One, there's no really other record of this happening. Weird, I know, right? No, the Air Disasters episode said that they had 
reports of it happening before, but it was always recoverable. Always recoverable. That's the big thing. There's no significant. Instances. There's no significance in this. The other big thing with this, they don't make the 757 anymore, and the 767 is made in a very small production. Yeah, that's fair. This is just really isn't necessary anymore because they are not very common airplanes anymore. They just aren't. The pilots that fly them every single day are probably pretty used to this, or already know this, or well aware of it, and they just want to bring their attention to it to say, hey, look, this isn't a ginormous issue. Just be aware. Just don't do it. <laughs> and if you do, just don't overreact. Because it turns out it's not that big of a deal. That's the big thing, right? So that's why they really didn't spend a lot of time focusing on changing this because it's really unnecessary. I mean, fair enough, I guess. Why change something that would have required a lot of re-engineering or thought when they could just be like, hey, just so you know, that can happen. And most pilots are probably yeah, like, but yeah, I, we know. I feel like <laughs> putting in a software update to just have an oral warning isn't that big of a deal. All right. Well, is that all you got? I was going to go over some of the previously issued recommendations. Oh, yes. Because that was all the new ones. Actually, there's one more new one I can touch on. They recommended convening a panel of aircraft performance, human factors, and aircraft operations experts to study the benefits and risks of adapting military automatic ground collision avoidance system technology for use in civil transport category airplanes and make a public report on the committee's findings. Not a bad idea. Yeah, just basically... Talk about it. Right. They're not even saying to implement such a thing. They're saying discuss it. Discuss and figure out its usefulness. I'm not going to say that that's not necessarily a good idea. I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not poo-pooing the idea at all, actually, of implementing such a thing, but there has to be a lot of thought put into it if they do. Mm-hmm. I think it's well-warranted, what with the number of CFIT accidents we've talked about over the years. Yep. So, some previously recommended things. Which already induces a small amount of rage because it's like, hey, we told you about this this many years ago. Right. Why didn't you do it? Right. For those of you that really need this, they actually put in here because they were recommended previously what the determination was as well on these. I am going to read these four back to back to back because they are all tied together and all of them were open but unacceptable in response. So in Meaning words, that they, they were not accepted. They were not accepted. They did not want to do these recommendations. They were still considered open, though. So... They recommended requiring all Part 121 and 135 air carriers to obtain any notices of disapproval for flight checks for certificates and ratings for all pilot applicants and evaluate the information before making a hiring decision. They recommended requiring 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 121, 135, and 91K. You might remember that from our last episode, but that has to do with air tour operators, actually. Makes sense. To document and retain electronic and or paper records of pilot training and checking events in sufficient detail so that the carrier and its principal operations inspector can fully assess a pilot's entire training performance. They recommend requiring 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 121, 135, and 91K operators to provide the training records requested in Safety Recommendation A-10-17, which was the last one, to hiring employers to fulfill their requirement under the Pilot Records Improvement Act. So, and then one more. They recommend developing a... Process for verifying, validating, auditing, and amending pilot training records at 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 121, 135, and 91K operators to guarantee the accuracy and completeness of the records. All of that is tied together because it's all part of that database they're putting together. And what they're saying is they really need to have specialists throughout the entire thing to make sure that the pilot records are being added adequately at each carrier as well, that they are being tracked and documented properly, and that they're being audited. Do we know if this is in effect yet? All I know is that the database is in effect. What I don't know is how any of these have turned out. 
and like putting in the pilot hours and stuff. Right. And how making sure it's accurate. How yes, how accurate and how audited these records are when they're being documented at air carriers. So that's kind of the whole thing. And I understand why the NTSB brings all of these up again, because you can have this database and it's great. And you can tie in all the public records for these pilots and it's great for them to be able to search. But if the carriers aren't adding in the information that's pertinent and nobody's checking that, what's it worth? So that's a thing. And the last two, which are, I'm just going to read one of them because it's for existing and for newly manufactured aircraft, we'll hit on this just one more time, just so that everybody's aware. They recommend requiring that all existing and newly manufactured aircraft operated under 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 121 or 135 and currently required to have a cockpit voice recorder and a flight data recorder be retrofitted with a crash-protected cockpit image recording system compliant with Technical Standard Order TSO-C176A cockpit image recorder equipment or equivalent. The cockpit image recorder should be equipped with an independent power source consistent with that required for cockpit voice recorders. So they just hit on it again. Tommy, not that horse! They're going to keep <laughs> doing it until they get it, and I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to get it. <laughs> I, You know, the, the sad part is they probably will. They actually probably will. Eventually. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be ugly. And it's going to be a lot of work and if they do. And it will probably save lives. Potentially, yes. Well, I mean, it's a good, like, as we talk about with, like, the CVR, like, companies going through the CVR and stuff, too, like, it's a good training tool. Like, hey, yes. you did this incorrectly, right. but it could have caused problems, but it didn't. But, like, let, you, you need to know that you did this incorrectly. But it's right. also vital information for future accident investigation to determine what happened and how to prevent it from happening again. Right. Because... Having the CVR on its own has prevented so many undetermined probable causes. Correct. Imagine how many more a cockpit image recorder would prevent. I know, but the I thought know. from the FAA isn't going to be about. I know, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm I understand playing the advocate for the NTSB. Yeah. The NTSB wants it so bad. Yeah. But the FAA has to deal with the other side of it. Of right. What it's about- a cost-benefit analysis, which is yes. really because then you have to determine the cost and benefit of lives. Well, not even just that, though. Uh, putting that aside, because mm-hmm. money is always going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. But they have to deal with, okay, what about the hundreds of thousands of other airplanes that aren't going to crash? Right. What happens if a company decides to use this information and Wrong, fire right? a pilot? Yeah. Right. For something that they can't do. And I mean, they've done this with CVRs where you can't do that. But okay. Right. <laughs> But right. they're gonna. And I mean, it's gonna just... cause pilots to be like super, like stiff. Murphy's Law yeah, says it... they're going to. I think it would be more of an issue if what I'm about to say actually took effect, and I, in my opinion, should take effect sooner. Mm-hmm. And that is to have data live streamed. So obviously, one big part of this would be much like a CVR. It cannot be connected to any outside data collection source. Exactly. It would have to be independent. As it is with the CVR, and that's why it would be its own recorder, an independent recorder. That's part of the argument. My bigger concern actually wouldn't even necessarily be that. Couldn't be live stream, couldn't be any of that. So my bigger concern is... But I think it should be streamed, because then (laughs) at that point, if it's streamed to a protected database, that and the FDR... But it's hackable. I know. That's the problem. The bigger problem that I see with this is even if it is an independent source, it just takes one wrong person with the wrong idea to start taking videos of things that they saw that they thought was funny or wrong and posting it all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get the recorder, 
the, the, the way to access the recorder and they start taking those videos and they start putting it all over the internet. And I know, putting it all over but... And that can cause so many problems. In it's, any. it's a privacy problem. We've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's going to be really hard for them. Like, I understand... Especially when it comes to fighting like, pilots' unions. <laughs> right. Like, I understand, like, the... What's the word I'm looking for? I understand the goodness it can bring. Benefit. Yes. Benefit. Benefit. There we go. The benefit it can bring. I also realize, though, that it's going to be real hard mm-hmm. because pilots are going to fight back on that so mm-hmm. hard. They're going to be like, no, I don't mm. want you looking at how I work. It's no. like how I don't have a, a, a camera in my room. Oh, my God. I used mm. to hate when I worked at the coffee shop that yeah, that should be illegal. Like you leaned against the counter for five minutes and you could have been cleaning. Like, really? Right. Yeah. No, that that should be illegal. I hate it. But it's hard because how do you make that illegal? Um, by the way, for all who are wondering, I looked up the pilot records database. You have to have an FAA or Department of Transportation login or some other federal login. I would to expect do so. nothing less. So, just. I would expect nothing less. It's a right. need to know thing. And there's a lot of need to know. I'm sure, it's not that difficult to have that access. But that also means that airlines probably but, don't have direct access. Not per se. Well, they can request the records, most likely. Well, maybe. What they probably would have is a designated expert, as they should. <laughs> In the hiring process, whose entire job is just that, pulling these pilot records from the database and reviewing them for hire. So that would be the go. right thing to do. So there. Ta-da. Ta-da. That, that's Atlas Air. I don't know the flight number. <laughs> 3591. That's the one. Which is call sign giant, if you didn't yes, pick that up. Yes, giant. Just how they are. Trivia fact, Atlas Air took possession of the last manufactured 747. They did. And then they painted it not pretty. They didn't do anything super special with it. It had another company's logo on the other side. And then it had a little, the, the designer of the original 747 had his little sticker on the front, but that's it. A lot of people were like, oh, you could have done so much more with you that. You could have done so much. You could have done so much more with that, and you didn't. Okay, well, go do all the things. All the things, the Patreon thing, the merch thing. We need to do a merch thing. We do need to do a merch thing. You should get a you, you should get matching pajamas with us. Do it. Yes. Podcast also needs to buy an air conditioner. <laughs> That's what I said. A swab cooler for this room. Oh my dear Jesus, it's hot up here. I'm not saying you need to gift us an air conditioner. Or a swab <laughs> the podcast cooler. is going to pay for it. They already did gift it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you sign up for Patreon, you be... can help us not die of heat stroke this summer. And then you won't have to hear this fan all summer long. No, you can hear the swamp <laughs> in the background. <laughs> uh, at least gosh. you won't hear my sweat hitting the microphone, because I swear to God. I am dying right now. It's hot. Um, yeah, it's very warm up here. I don't know how the cats live up here. I have no... Well, By the way, like, they like warm. Their body temperature is higher than ours, so they like the heat. And Jinx is flat out sprawled in front of Miranda, and it is the cutest <laughs> thing. Every time I look down... He's taken up more space. Yeah, he's been there the whole time. That's what he do. <laughs> and he just keeps extending himself. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I need to be here. Right. And you keep moving into my and, space. And he said no. He's like, you are in my space. <laughs> he, All said, right. he said, don't touch me. All right. And on that note. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a great and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, 
please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.